Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. It's Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. On 95.5 WSB. Back so soon to Green and Growing this Memorial Day weekend on 95.5 WSB. Want to get right out to your great phone calls. Up first, a question about gardenias comes from Scott in Noonan. Hey, Scott. Good morning, Ashley. I really enjoy your show. First time caller. Thank you so much. thank you. Okay, I have two questions about my gardenias. They're um, about eight feet tall bushes. They're along the house on the uh, northern side and western side. And um, every year, they just don't bloom. They only get like maybe five blooms on them, and then that's it for the year. Um, Been in the house for three years, and uh, yeah, every year it's just like that. Wondering if I can fertilize or what I should be doing to get them to get more blooms. And how much sun do they get? The the western exposure ones will definitely get the afternoon sun. Mm -hmm. The northern exposure ones don't get much sun because um, the house kind of shades them where the roof overhangs. Okay. With gardenias especially, the more sun they get, the better. So the ones that are getting that afternoon sun are going to be a lot happier, I think. Um, And are they all, even the ones on the the other side of the house, are they all about the same height? They've all been there a while? Yeah, and the height's the next question. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, they're they're about um, seven feet to eight foot tall. And I need to trim them down to about five feet because they're, just over the porch rails now, and I'm wondering when's the best time to trim them. Okay, so that that is a great question. Generally, as a rule of thumb, so we don't overthink things, we want to prune things when they're done flowering. That is the best time to do it. So anytime after they're done flowering, go ahead and cut them back. As far as size reduction, though, uh, really, we never want to take more than a third of the plant away because if you really, if you remove too many leaves on the plant, it's not going to be able to photosynthesize and do everything that it needs and capture the sunlight. You know, it's going to be kind of disproportionate. So we only really want to move, remove up to a third at a time. So kind of keep that in mind. So really, when you're reducing something that's eight feet tall, that's ten or twelve feet tall, it's going to be in stages that you're able to gradually reduce the size of something that large. Um, So start with that, but also just kind of keep in mind the only time to avoid pruning when you don't want to prune anything that flowers is probably late fall. And the reason why, like that's when we're planting new trees and shrubs, you know, they're going to be able to acclimate to the soil. But the reason we want to avoid pruning at that time is because every time you prune a plant, 
all of the hormones send out signals to put on new growth. That's what it wants to do. It's been injured, so it wants to recover. So when you prune in late fall, it's going to have all this new growth on it. It's going to be so excited to be growing. And then, you know, the cold temperatures <laughs> are going to come within a month, two months, whatever. And that brand new growth is so much more susceptible to a freeze and to a frost and cold temperatures than the rest of the plant. So that's the only time to avoid pruning. But otherwise, Scott, and I did tell people January, February, March, you know, people kept saying, oh, mine were freeze damaged. They don't look good. I think they're dead. But the cold weather, I was just like, you know what? Don't prune them yet. We got to wait. We got to wait. So now that they're getting healthy, they're getting vigorous, they are putting on new growth, you could really start to prune anytime. Just when you prune before they flower or while they're flowering, obviously you're going to lose some of the flowers, but in your case, you're not getting a lot anyways. Um, and fertilizing, okay. just fertilize when they're in active growth. That's when they're best able to take up the nutrients through the soil. So anytime you could. Um the Espoma products are what I have, and I mean, you could buy them anywhere, but that's particularly just the brand that I like for fertilizing gardenias, but a lot of all-purpose fertilizers would do just fine. Just follow the label directions. Don't think the more fertilizer you throw out, the better. You know, it really has to be the right ratio to be most productive, but you could certainly do that too. Uh, whether planted, the ground's really clay. It's like really compacted, so is it best to kind of maybe dig it up a little bit before I put the fertilizer down, just so it kind of works in better. Um, I mean, you could, but you don't want to work it around too much because you don't want to, you know, risk harming the, the roots advantage. if you start digging yeah. around too much. Um, but generally, I think gardenias are fine with with clay as long as it was prepared properly when they were planted in the first place. Which obviously they're still growing, so something was done right. Um, so you could work that fertilizer if you use like a granular. You could certainly work it in the first maybe inch of soil if you just want to use a trowel or something and kind of dig it sure. in and get it in there. But water it in and that'll just be, you know, really off to a good start. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you use a slow release one or if you use one that's like miracle Grow that kind of works right then and there. Either one, any food's going to be good. Perfect. I really appreciate your advice as always. And um, thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. Really good to hear from you this morning. And also, too... You know, pruning is good, not only for size reduction, like you're talking, but it kind of gives it a boost, right? Like you're pruning off the stuff that's just not really productive. You're pruning off some of the limbs that may not have as many leaves. And it's just giving the bush that much more open air to then grow new parts. And that's really when we may, with that, with the combination of fertilizer, really be, may be able to get a lot of new flowers. So it kind of kind of reinvigorate it to, to maybe start to bloom a little bit better for you. But yeah, gardenias, the more sun, the better for sure. Scott, good luck. I know you're going to do just fine. I have full faith in you. We are going to speak to Tommy from Decatur. Good morning, Tommy. Welcome to the show. Thank you. The gentleman called about gardenia. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got quite a few. In the early stages, for me, I've used, I think it's called Miracid. miracle Grow makes it. It's just, a, you know, instant plant food. Okay. I do it at half strength with a little bit of Epsom salt, and it uh, seems to work good for mine. And um, I don't know where his location is, but once they get established, if he's fertilized, if they're near the lawn or whatever, and he's fertilizing that, they usually... You know, if they get a couple of years old and start going, really you don't have to do much to them. Every, I think about it every once in a while. I'll throw a little bit of the, you know, plant food on it. Other than that, that's about it. Just yeah. prune them. And this is the time of year that they would need some fertilization. Um, I would caution against, you know, you've got a good mix, uh, but anybody else using Epsom salt, you just don't want to use too much. You know, too much salt or too much fertilizer of anything could burn the plant. But, yeah, what's worked for you, this is a great time of year to do it because when things are in active growth, that's when they are requiring the most nutrients, taking the most out of the soil. So a great time and maybe hoping by now 
a lot of people are seeing some new growth on the gardenias. You know, that was one of the most common plants I got questions about with the freeze damage. Um, but by now, you should definitely be seeing them rebound ever so slowly. I'm glad yours are yours are good, Tommy. Yeah, they, they're coming back. I was worried, too, about yeah. them. I mean, some of them went almost bare. Oh. And also, also on the pruning, I would suggest if you can get into the middle of them, to thin them out, you know, they'll start making all kind of little weird branches. Just try to trim <laughs> them into a single branch so it can always get some light down in there. Oh, that's that. a great piece of advice. Yeah, because all the dead stuff, and if it's holding on to any dead leaves, that's just shading out the rest of the plant. You're right, and it needs that sunlight in it. Good point. And like you were saying on the plant food, I do it half strength yeah. just to make sure I don't burn the Epsom salt. No, not just a sprinkle, not even a teaspoon, you know, in a gallon of water. Yeah. I do that. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about also is bamboo. Oh, my gosh. Tell me about it. <laughs> well, I'm working a property that was built in 55, and so it's been overrun for a while. Uh, a little method I found that seems to be fairly effective, if you go out and you've got the early sprouts, a lot of times you can just pop them up with your hand mm-hmm. and just shoot a, little, uh, shoot a little glyphosate down in there, you know, and that'll help it. But then on the uh, hard stalks, you look real closely at them at the bottom, you'll see some rings. Yeah. And if you're not mowing that area and you can leave a little bit, I always cut, take a set of loppers and cut them at that last ring by the inch sticking up. And then take a spade bit, you know, and drill and go in there and just start working that fiber up and down till you bring it out. And if you look down in there, you'll actually see a little pinhole. That means you've gotten to the root system. Wow. I take, I take double strength uh, glyphosate then, you know, the Roundup mix mm-hmm. it double strength. And I'll just fill that up. If you go too far in there with that spade bit, you'll bring up dirt. That means you've gone through the root. But if you can, you know, you play with it and you can kind of get it going. But if you can do that and just fill that little cavity up with uh, the glyphosate, um, and if it looks like rain, you can even do it when it looks like rain. Just take a cup or something and sit it on top of it. Usually about two weeks later, you go back and you'll start seeing some of the other stalks dying back where it's gotten into the root system. And you just kind of work your way from the edge and just work back in. God bless you. For how much property are you dealing with that you're trying to remove bamboo? Well, it's just one yard. It's just a backyard. But like I said, it's, you know, it's been there for a long time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just starting to go. It actually got uh, right to the... um, foundation in one place so it started to move now at what point tommy can you mow over the stalks i mean i know once they're really really tall you obviously need to go at them cut them down but when that bamboo stalk hardens you know i would think it would reach a certain point where you don't want to run a mower over it necessarily right yeah well about a month or so after you've sprayed it with you know with that glyphosate a lot of times you can go back and just step on them and they'll just crush over okay but you know it's like i said if it's in the in the bed of it the other thing I found, too, though, is they do a lot of exfoliating, you know, and if you'll keep that material out of there, they seem to like being in that damp area and they'll start sprouting a whole lot. So if you can kind of keep that cleaned out, it kind of slows it down a little bit. Boy, that's some good advice. Thank you. I did have a gentleman. I I hope he's not listening. I'm not going to call him out, but like less than a year ago, called the show and he's like, I want to grow bamboo. It was toward the end of the show. And he's like, what do you think? And I could have screamed. I was just like, run for the hills. No, please don't. Trust me. I've got a next door neighbor that's decided to do that. Uh-oh. Oh, y'all aren't going to be friends for very long. I mean, I know it's going to take a while, but no. Just well, I'm going to I'm going to put uh 24 inch aluminum flashing down, you know, in the trench when I build the wall. Smart stuff. man. That's Hopefully it'll hold it out. I think it should. I think it should. Well, Tommy, really good to hear from you, man. Don't wait 6 months to call again. 
All right. You take care. Oh, you too. Have a great day and be very careful out there with that bamboo. So something to consider. You know, I'm so glad Tommy gave you those tips because he ain't lying. Uh, Clumping is probably what you would want to consider if you wanted bamboo. You had the space for it. Clumping is going to be really, really slow to grow and expand. But running is what we're afraid of, where it has those underground runners or the rhizomes. And a lot of times those can get four feet long. Uh, They grow at a depth of, I mean, down to as far as 18 inches. So you think you're digging it out and you're not. It's it's a foot and a half, almost two feet down below uh, when they get really, really deep. And so that's tough. And that's what Tommy's referring to if he were to do aluminum flashing in the ground and go down with it two feet so that you block those rhizomes from spreading you know, horizontally. And so, you know, making a physical barrier or trenching it in, if you just want it as a, as a uh, privacy hedge, you know, what, what am I trying to say? Just like fencing or whatever. You've got to really do the good prep work to put a good barrier and, you know, cloth, black landscape fabric. I mean, that's not going to cut it. Those rhizomes are going to go through that. So uh, my advice, if you were insisting on bamboo, buy a little lucky bamboo plant and keep it inside and to keep it in check. But, uh, you know, outdoors, the clumping type is really probably what you want to consider. And, you know, I don't like running to chemicals right away, but uh, glyphosate Roundup is really what you've got to use uh, on a lot of these unwanted plants. You know, especially you got to consider your neighbors. You wanted bamboo, but people two houses down, they didn't want it. Glyphosate, you know, you have that nearby to deal with something like bamboo, like privet, all these kinds of things that you just have to stay after and you have to treat. When we return, a question about a favorite plant for a hanging basket next on Green and Growing. The update on holiday weekend weather from Finley Roofing. Up next is Fran calling from Douglasville. Hey, welcome, Fran. Hi, I love watching your show, Ashley. And my question is, I have hanging baskets on my front porch with ferns. They're in the pots that I purchased them in. And I wanted them to get a lot bigger. And someone had told me that if I just transfer them to a larger coconut-lined basket, Mm -hmm. that that would definitely help. The material in the basket, I I guess, doesn't matter that the basket is lined with, doesn't matter so much as the soil that they're in. Um, But when you're talking about that, like coconut lining, yeah, that's that cocoa hair, and it's made from the coconut core, like the husk. And really, those are just made to provide a really good balance between drainage and water retention. So they're best used in hanging baskets because they may keep moisture in a little bit better, you know, when potted stuff is uh, more apt to dry out more quickly than something in the ground. So I think that that's a great liner. That's what you see most often in the nurseries and for sale when you have to replace the liner. The only bad thing is that, of course, they deteriorate over time and those hairs start to pull away from one another. Or you may even have birds come after them and they start picking off and plucking off the hairs of the liner because they're like, ooh, this is good stuff for me to build my nest. Um, So they do just, you know, you throw them in the garden, let them decompose or, or turn them into compost or something. But for moisture retention for the ferns, I think it's a good idea. And buy one when you go to buy the liners, you know, buy one maybe a little bit bigger than what you think you need. And that way you can cut it back to size for the hanging basket rather than going too small. If you go too small, you're going to have a disaster on your hands with 
uh, soil running out and running over the top when you go to water them. And a good indication for me, when your hanging ferns are happy, the birds visit them a lot. I think that's a really good indication that the ferns are happy, the birds are visiting them. You remember to keep them watered, especially over the hot, dry spells over the summertime. Yeah, I usually uh, water them pretty much every other day, late in the afternoon when the sun's gone down, fertilize them maybe once a week. Yeah, but, uh, and that's... The birds yeah, see, yep, then they're happy. And, and that's a good point, too, uh, watering a little bit later in the day. You don't want to water them in the middle of the day because you're going to have a lot of evaporation. Just watering at the soil level, not overhead, but watering at the base of the plant at the soil level later in the evening for a hanging basket's fine. A lot of that water is going to drain out. So good, good, very good, Fran. I'm jealous. I wish I could have a spot for hanging ferns in my house. They're so beautiful. Uh, we'll get back to more calls in the last half hour of Green and Growing. It's a beautiful Saturday here on 95.5 WSB. with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. On 95.5 WSB. Thanks for tuning in on the Memorial Day holiday weekend. More to come in the last half hour of the show. Back to calls. Karen in Marietta. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Ashley. What's going on? I inherited my dad's house recently, and he was 90 years old and independent up until he passed. Mm. But that also means that he wouldn't let us do his yard. So his front yard is absolutely full of nothing but weeds. It's beautifully green, but it's just weeds. It also slopes down from the street, and they've always had a problem with everything running off into the backyard. So I'm going to build a retaining wall about two-thirds of the way from the street, and I'm going to backfill it, and I want to do a cottage garden. Oh, fun. Yeah, a lot of work, but I think it'll be beautiful. But anyway, what do I do to wholesale kill everything in that front yard, knowing that obviously I'll have a lot of dirt on, on some of it, but near the house I'll have new sod. I don't want, obviously, to use Roundup, and this is kind mm-hmm. of continuing with your theme this morning. So what do you suggest? You know, I'm I'm really glad you asked the question. And I myself did the same thing. I have a very similar slope in my yard, did a retaining wall, like a not even half circle, not even that that wide, but an arced retaining wall dug right into the slope, had to bring in some fresh soil and all that. I had pulled juniper out. It was creeping juniper and I hated it. It had snakes, it had poison ivy, it had little mini oak trees from the acorns that settled down and fell into it. I mean, it just got too much to weed and too scary to tread through and try to keep up. So I ripped all of that out. And yeah, I kind of wanted to start over as well because there were acorns buried for years. Oak trees kept coming up and all of that kind of thing. Uh, without wanting to just spray Roundup over the entire area, the the non-chemical thing that I can think for you to do, Karen, for such a large area, there's actually a couple of things. Uh, solarization or solarizing. I've talked to Clint Waltz about that, the turf grass expert at the University of Georgia. It can be effective weed control uh, for keeping weeds out and burning them out. And some of the seeds that are higher to the soil, the top layer of uh, soil surface, uh, it, it can really be effective in killing that. So as the name implies, solarizing, it's going to get really, really hot. So you cover that soil, that entire area, with an impermeable plastic 
you're trapping all of that heat. The temperatures get so high underneath that plastic that it's going to kill anything. Uh, Grass, weed seeds, take some time, but this is obviously getting into the best time of year to do that. It's going to be unsightly. Uh, You're going to want to keep that plastic in place for a couple of months. So when the sun is hot, temperatures are higher, that's going to be one of the best ways to literally burn out weeds non-chemically and really staking it down very well. Now, rhizomes underground, you know, um, of Bermuda grass and zoysia and stuff like that, if that is still lingering, solarizing isn't going to be as effective against killing those grasses, Clint said, uh, because they're just going to be in the soil for a long, long time. Bermuda is hard to get to go away. Another thing, though, in addition to solarizing and trying to burn out every little bit of vegetation that's there, is doing a pre-emergence herbicide. And now I'd said non-chemical, but this is good. This is targeted. It's not harmful to other things. A pre-emergence herbicide is obviously a herbicide that is going to get to weeds before they germinate, hence pre-emergence, before they emerge Uh, A pre-emergence herbicide is going to get to weeds, again, where the seeds just stay in the soil and wait for the right season to grow into weeds. So when we want to apply pre-emergence, it's twice a year because once you got to do it to get after cool season weeds, like winter weeds that stay green and bright all winter, and then you want to do it again to prevent summer weeds. So it's cyclical. You have to do it twice a year. That way you're targeting cold season weeds and then warm season weeds, which are two totally different things. Um, And staying on that path, whether you, like you said, you're going to put sod, you still want to do pre-emergence for the the duration. We've kind of missed the window of preventing the hot season, the warm season weeds. Clint was recommending you do that by mid-March, late February, mid-March, because you're you're getting the granular in the soil and in the ground where it's going to be able to knock back the, the weed seeds as they start to heat up and start to germinate, and it prevents a lot of them. And then for the cool season weeds, you want to apply pre-emergence herbicide by September 15th, generally, uh, in middle Georgia, northwest Georgia, kind of where we are. That's going to be effective for prevention, doing it at the end of August, early September. So that, in addition to the solarizing, I think is going to get you on a good start. That's going to take a season. So, you know, stay on track for the one in early September, get that pre-emergence herbicide granular out there and let it work. I mean, you you won't, it's going to prevent things. So you're, you can't go, oh, it didn't work. I still have weeds. It's not going to be a hundred percent, of course, but it is going to prevent and annihilate any weeds that would have cropped up in the wintertime and then doing it again in March and now getting everything ready for next summer. Uh, that's a good start. Non-chemical, no roundup, no nothing like that. And when you till or when you kind of mess with the first two or three or four inches of soil, sometimes you're just moving stuff around. I mean, you're killing things that are, you know, in place with roots, but you're also just moving seeds around and jostling them around. They're still in the ground. They're still in the soil. They're still going to sprout even if you've interrupted them and, and disrupted them by moving them around. So that's a great start and bringing in fresh fill dirt, you know, trust the landscape company that you're going with to design and build the retaining wall and, you know, ask questions about where they're sourcing the soil um, to fill that retaining wall as well. And you should be off to a good start that they're not introducing something that is coming in with a whole new set of problems and a whole new set of weeds. So great question. Good luck. I think that should kind of set you in the right direction. And so many good, gosh, Instagram accounts and Facebook pages for inspiration for a cottage garden. I mean, there's so many people that I follow. I think there's some lady, I want to say she's in Oklahoma, that uh, a lady at the doctor's office told me about, maybe Garden Fairy or Gardenary or something. And she does a lot of um, kind of cottage inspired, I'll have to look up her name. Um, 
Yeah, Gardenary. Yep, she's on Instagram. A lot of cottage-inspired gardening as well. So for, for some ideas, you may want to check her out as well. I think her name's Nicole. Thank you, Karen. Thanks so much. Next is Faith calling from Atlanta. Hey, Faith, welcome to the show. Thank you. We are inundated with poison ivy. Oh, yeah. yeah. It just seems like this year there's a lot more. I would agree. I would agree. Uh, the winter, the, the cold weather did not knock that back at all. And actually, with the warmer temperatures early, I think it started growing much sooner than it usually does. So it has been able to just explode. Um, and it seems like everywhere you go, it, there's more. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, I started off the show by telling everybody we're camping this weekend. And of course, my Great Dane is kind of wandering off the, the camping pad into the woods and, you know, the pine straw and under the pine trees. But there's a ton of poison ivy. And I'm thinking, great, she's walking through it. She's getting those oils on her on her hair, on her fur. And then she's going to transfer it to me. And I will be on the radio next weekend griping about being itchy. Um, so you break out real bad, too? Some. So what I have found, and I, and I became so much more susceptible to it the older I got. It didn't bother me as a kid. I spent hours in the woods, but now that I'm older, I had it really bad one time and that was enough uh, for it to be in my system the rest of my life. So I have found uh, BioAdvance, which used to be Bayer, BioAdvance in the Blue Bottle, their brush killer for me works very well in treating the poison ivy um, and spot spraying in my yard. And that's a little more targeted versus, you know, you just going out with Roundup with glyphosate that's going to kill everything nearby. Right. Um, the, the brush killer is a lot more targeted. It takes a few days and it may take a second application in six or seven days, but it takes a few days for it to finally start to wilt. And then even then, once I see it start to wilt, I make sure it is crispy and wilted before I go out there with gloves. But I'm super cautious. I look like a complete idiot when I'm doing yard work because I have the gloves up to my elbows. So I use like rose gloves, but then I have a plastic bag over that and I dig up or try to remove, you know, see the little, the vines are so thin, it's really hard to follow them and pull them up um, right. to where they don't break. And Virginia Creeper, I found, is much the same with the five leaves, you know, to really get a good hold of the vine and yank a, a big part of it out. But that's what I do uh, because it's going to keep coming back. You know, if, if the foliage just dies, the vine's still there and that stuff's going to stay there. Um, yeah. So, yep, I put a plastic bag over the glove when I know it's, but the oil's still stay in it for a long, long time. So I just take extra precaution. And then once we break out, this has been so fun for me. This is a fun topic because every year someone will call with different suggestions for prevention or for soothing their skin once they've broken out. Uh, Fells naphtha, that old like drying laundry soap is yes. good on your skin. Yes, I have some. <laughs> yeah, I do too. And it's like, I mean, even the packaging still looks like 60 years ago. Uh, but that stuff's just really good to have. Ivory soap, I mean, that's maybe a little easier to find. The drying agent's going to get to the oils that cause the itch. Um, somebody years ago told me J.R. Watkins liniment oil, and I don't know much about that. Um, okay. And this was cool. When I went to see my dad in Asheville, North Carolina, jewelweed. Jewelweed is a natural remedy, they say. And it's a it's a weed. It grows in, in woodland areas, but it's got a really pretty orange flower. And the sap of jewelweed is said to relieve the itch. So, I mean, if you do hikes and things like that, jewelweed may be something you come across. Um, and a little more practical if we were just to go to the drugstore and pick up something. I don't know if, Faith, you have heard of Technu? No. Okay. It's T-E-C-N-U. T-E-C-N-U. Technu. And I've used that with success as well. For prevention and for soothing, because when you buy the Technu, there's a box that has two bottles, and one is to break up the oil as soon as you go in, within the first couple of hours. You could stay out and do a little more yard work, but as soon as you get in, 
um, within two hours of possibly coming into contact with it. One of the products is to just rub vigorously all over your skin or wherever the you know you could have come in contact with it, and you've got to rub that stuff for like two or three minutes. Just rub it really, really good into your skin to break up the oils. And then the other bottle, the other product in the box, is for after you've got the itch, and it's a little oh, bit okay. soothing. So that's worked, and they don't pay me to promote it. That's just something I found. Jason Durden, who used to work for Channel 2 and flying the helicopter, actually, is the one that told me about that. And I've always been so grateful for that because that was 10 years ago, and I always have it on hand. Okay. Will the brush killer kill everything else? No, it is very targeted. It is very selective for um, some briars brambles, things like that. Um, definitely, you know, read the label depending on where you're wanting okay. to spray it. Any spray like that, any kind of herbicide spray or whatever, we don't want to spray on a windy day um, because of drift because it may carry unintentionally to other things. But it is a lot more selective and targeted, so it's not going to be going after hydrangeas or grass or something like that if, if it's in the lawn. So I would recommend that being a more specific herbicide to Glyphosate, Roundup, which could, you know, of course, kill things we don't mean to. Faith, thank you. Very good conversation. I'm glad to have the opportunity to share all those things. Of course, there may be science behind it. There may not. That's just fun a fun list that I've gathered from over the years from recommendations from uh, all the listeners to the show. So more calls when we come back, 404-872-0750. Got to take a break right here on Green and Growing. You're listening to WSB. weather update brought to you by Finley Roofing. Time for one more call. June calling from Tucker. Hey, June, good morning. I'm having a problem with my canna lilies. When they come out, the leaves are twisted around the stalk. I think there's these little bugs that are in them. And on some of the leaves, there's actually holes all around the leaf. And they're very uniform. They're in line. They're, <laughs> it looks like a um, hole punch, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. <laughs> when the canna lilies are coming out of the ground, and I'm really glad to hear that you were able to overwinter yours, as did I. I don't dig them up every year. I, I leave them in the ground over the winter time, cover them really well with some pine straw or leaf litter. But when they start to grow up, a moth will lay an egg and have you know a little baby left in the tight rolled canna lily leaves. That baby is a canna leaf roller and it starts to chew its way out of the center because the leaves of the canna are still so tightly wound. Like if you took a piece of paper and rolled it up and put a bug in the center, it's going to eat all those holes trying to make its way out. It's not fatal to the plant. It's already done the damage and probably died or gone on to the next life cycle. What you can do if that becomes just a really, really big issue or you still see some bite marks, new bite marks happening on the leaves, one of the things you can use is BT spray, you know, which we talk about Bacillus thuringiensis. BT spray is a really targeted pesticide for what is a worm or a caterpillar. And that's what's causing those bite marks is the canna leaf roller. Yeah. Aptly named, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but sometimes it seems like some leaves grow out and they're really pretty, but then some are still tight and then they turn brown even before the flower can bloom out. I do think there's some kind of webbing involved, or maybe it's the, the spit left behind as they're chewing their way out. But I think that kind of webbing or, or moisture is what's keeping it tighter than it should be. Okay. 
Thank you very much. Yeah, I can't wait, though, for them to grow through that. And when it gets hot enough, those canna lilies, given enough sun, are going to be, you know, really, really tall and beautiful. They can provide a great uh, privacy screening for a lot of folks. I mean, of course, they go away in the wintertime. But then when they have that beautiful tropical flower stalk on them, whether it's red or yellow or orange, those are going to look great, June. So thanks so much for the call. Glad we were able to identify that. So it's been a full show. Thank you for letting me spend a Saturday morning with you. Check out the website, wsbradio.com backslash green and growing to listen to the podcast. In case you missed it, we had an interview with Red Oak Lavender Farm where you can experience that this summer. The website, redoaklavender.com. Stewardship and Forestry with Georgia Pacific. That website, gp.com backslash stewardship. And the Atlanta Coyote Project with Chris Mowry and the work that folks at Barry College are doing, atlantacoyoteproject.org. And Chuck Lavelle, my favorite, one of my all-time favorite interviews with the uh, keyboardist for the Rolling Stones, the Allman Brothers. What a talented musician. His television show, check it out. The website there, America's Forests with ChuckLavelle.com. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.